Hi there, a quick note before we begin the episode. Did you know that Atlas Lingue has its own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life. In this audiobook, we share additional exclusive commentaries on each episode with brand new insights and examples on the subject that we can't stop thinking about, how humans translate everything that comes their way. Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Salut! Je parle français, anglais, espagnol. Hola, hablo espagnol, inglés y portugués. Hi, I speak English and French. Ciao, parlo italiano e inglese. Picture this. A friend is at a business dinner. Glass in hand, cheese in mouth. Suddenly, his boss nails an unflattering remark. <coughs> He's a little baffled. Nobody seems to have noticed how terribly impolite and unprofessional that was. Nobody except the newbie. The guy fresh out of university who's just joined the world of grown-ups. The new co-worker gives the friend an unspoken look. From just that look, they both know that the other understands. And they're in agreement. The boss is a heartless man. I get you, bro. Sorry it was you, his glance seems to say. It happens so many times to all of us. Yet... There isn't a word that describes that feeling. Or is there? Welcome to Atlas Lingue, a show where we talk about languages, about the joyful, the challenging, and the joyfully challenging aspects of everyday communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and today we're going to talk about untranslatable words. Back to us. You must have guessed it by now. That friend was me. Being embarrassed during our first company dinner after all this COVID madness. Anyhow, fast forward a few weeks, I was reading an article online on words that don't have a translation. And incredibly, a passage described exactly that feeling, using one single catchy formulation. Mami la pinata pie. Mamila Pinata Pie. Mamila Pinata Pie. Mamila Pinata Pie. 
a word that comes from the Yagan language of Tierra del Fuego. It refers to the wordless, meaningful look shared by two people who both know the other understands and is in agreement. Boom. There it was. That's what I'd felt when the newbie looked at me. That's the word I'd been looking for all along. When I first saw it, my existence felt just a little richer and more nuanced. And when I googled it, I was surprised to find just how many existing untranslatable words there are. Sobremesa, which actually refers to this nice time a family would spend after lunch. Abbiocco is an Italian word that means uh, becoming uh, tired after a meal. So, so that is a word for a sad state of intense longing for someone or something that is absent. There are hundreds of foreign words whose all near equivalents in English are imperfect. I'm intrigued. Do these words indicate the existence of phenomena that have been overlooked by English-speaking cultures? Can untranslatable words expand our comprehension of the world around us and of our feelings? And ultimately, if you can't translate something, what is the best way to get a message across languages? To answer these questions, we rang Marco Nevis. He's a translator and professor at Nova University in Lisbon, Portugal, and he has been investigating the topic for six years. And of course, we immediately hit it off when he mentioned my favorite untranslatable word. To be honest, I think every word is translatable, but there are some words that are quite difficult to pin down in one specific language. The fact is, normally we tend to look at very specific words. For example, in Portuguese, we have a word which is saudade. And many people in Portugal, and not only here, but in other cultures, think that this word is untranslatable. Because it's very difficult to translate the word from using only one word. Ah, saudade. Or saudade, if you're Brazilian. Haven't we all been there? That mixed feeling of longing, nostalgia, and melancholy for something? Well, at least we've all seen it. Memes of the word saudade are constantly posted on social media. Sometimes when I'm explaining this question of translatability versus untranslatability, I use the example of the word coffee. In Portuguese, we can say café, uh, which is coffee, but it's also uh, our word café, also, it's also the translation of coffee house, for example. So we need to have two English words translate one Portuguese word. And this is a very common word, so it's nothing extraordinary to have some words that cannot be translated using just one single word. When we have a text to translate, we don't simply replace a word by another word. Sometimes we have to remove words or to add words or to use some other grammatical feature of the language. So, to be honest, it's very rare to find a sentence that is translated word by word. When some people say, oh, this is a very difficult word to translate, this word just only exists in this culture, it's true, technically, so the word will only exist in that specific culture and language, but that doesn't mean that the word is untranslatable. Wait, wait. Are you saying that I've been sharing saudade memes for no reason all along? 
It just means that we will need more words to translate it. We will need to define it in the other language. And the fact is, when people talk about these very complex words, they normally give them very complicated definitions when in the daily life, speakers of that language will use it in a very simple way. To use the, the same example I gave earlier, the word I was telling you about, saudade, normally when people start speaking about the untranslatability of saudade, they will talk about a very complicated definition regarding longing, but also love. We have this kind of longing, but in our daily life, we use saudade in a very simple way. When we want to say, I miss you, or I miss something, uh, I miss going to the cinema, for example, we use thanks saudade in our cinema. I miss going to the cinema. So it's used in a very common, banal way, and it's very translatable in that sense. In a way, Marco is the bearer of good news here. He may have ruined the viral power of the word saudade for me, but at least I don't need to learn how to pronounce Zainzucht, Hügeli, or Waldeinsamkeit to apply them in my daily life. These words are not untranslatable in absolute terms. We should simply dance around them. It won't sound as snappy and witty, but it may be simpler. And after all, sometimes understanding what people say in our own language presents its own difficulties. Consider another consequence of Pascal's work. Supposing I have a Let's say a group of scientists from all over the world is holding a conference. Even though everyone speaks a different language, they can probably understand one another. The concepts they talk about are familiar to them. But imagine if those same scientists tried to explain their research to the public. To me, it would be as if they were speaking German. If the people talking do not share the same set of terms or the same knowledge about uh, the world. And as a joke, but sometimes I say that it's probably more difficult to fans from different football clubs to agree on something about football than people from different languages. So the untranslatability problem is normally, or let's say this in another way, the barrier of languages is stronger between people that speak different jargons, if you wish, than between different languages. Jargon is quite translatable, so normally it's very easy to explain what a very specific term in, in one area means. The problem is, when we have a text with full of jargon, full of words that the general audience doesn't understand, this wall of words, this wall of jargon, will function as the barrier, and then you will need a kind of translator to tell the same thing but using common words. So it is still translatable, but this barrier of words works as an untranslatable wall. So have we finally found a true instance of untranslatability? Not really. Marco Nevis believes humans always find a way to communicate. For this reason, he says he's still on his quest for a linguistic unicorn. Well, it's difficult, in fact, but it's never impossible. So all human texts can be translated into any other languages. I wrote about this 
in the, this last book. My research, my academic research, is not only um, focused on translatability, this is one of my uh, interests, but uh, also on distance between languages, as I, I told you before. And I'm still looking for those mythic, untranslatable words, those words that no one can really understand outside the specific culture. There's always a way of understanding because we have a common human ground that allows us to translate. And this is very different from other species. I'm starting to think that if I really want to use exotic foreign words in my daily utterances, I might have to start to whistle and click like a dolphin. So when we look at animals, they have their own communication systems. We could call those systems language if we wish, but we can't translate them. Here we have true untranslatability. It's really, really difficult to understand what other species are communicating between themselves. It's completely different from uh, trying to understand what other humans are talking about. So uh, this may seem obvious to some people, this may seem false to other people, but to me, and I tried to explain that in, in these last uh, works I, I wrote, to me this is one of the most important aspects of human language, the fact that it's divided into many languages, but those languages allow translation constantly. So we are always translating between different languages. So untranslatability is just a myth. If the urban legend were true that the Inuit people have dozens of different words for snow, we'd still be able to translate them in another language. Or as the big fat language appropriators that we are, we'd simply borrow those words in toto. That comes from Latin, by the way. It means as a whole. All languages import and export words constantly. Only if we think about a very isolated language, for example, in an island, spoken by a people that has no contact with anyone else. So that's the only way we could imagine a language that does not import or export words. So this translingualism of words is a part of the nature of language, of human language. In any European language, you, you will find words coming from many other uh, languages, not only European, but also African, Asiatic, and even American. So let me explain. The term translingual is made out of two words, trans and lingual. Suresh Kanagaraja is a professor of applied linguistics, English, and Asian studies at Penn State University. He's an expert on translingual research and practice. And while I was listening to him, it hit me how there was so much more to language than I thought. Communication always involves making meaning beyond, above, uh, separate languages, which are labeled as English, uh, Spanish, Tamil, French, etc. In practice, uh, when we speak, we move in and out of these languages, and we also draw from uh, these languages as relevant, not from all of them all the time, but as relevant for our purposes. So translingual means uh, communication always happens beyond the boundaries of label languages. And a second meaning of uh, translingual is communication always involves going beyond words. 
to draw from uh, gestures, setting, objects, uh, the body. Okay, this is getting kind of metaphysical here, so let me sum it up. So, communication transcends individual languages. If that's true, I could speak half Spanish and half English, and everybody should understand everything I say, right? Some people think of it as the activity of just moving between languages. You know, if I switch to uh, Tamil during this conversation, or just switch to Mandarin word to say hi to you, uh, people would say you are uh, shuttling between languages, you're going in and out of languages. Bilingual people constantly do this. Think of Spanglish. Stella, no, this is very dangerous. Okay, señorita, that's it. Come here because Jay is going to be very mad if something happens. Yo estoy aquí matándome mientras tú juegas al artista. God, I'm so dramatic. You screamed at the Amirta because she brought hot pink balloons instead of fuchsia. Fuchsia is a royal color. In some areas of the U.S., Spanish and English are spoken by blending them together. But Professor Suresh says there's a difference between saying, let's get tortillas, code mixing, versus saying, vamos, let's get tortillas, code meshing or code switching if you're multilingual. So when I'm saying I eat tortilla for lunch, um, it is very matter of fact. It's very literal. Uh, there's nothing... Uh, knew that I'm saying by using the Spanish word. And in the second case? So, for example, uh, if I said, uh, Vamonos, amigos, let's have tortilla for lunch. Uh, some people would say, you are having a conversation in English with uh, some of those friends. Some of them might be Spanish. And then you said something uh, a lot in Spanish, like Vamonos, amigos. You're trying to say something extra there. Why did you switch to that Spanish there? Are you trying to be very friendly to them? Are you trying to joke? Uh, are you trying to be very persuasive and get them all to come with you rather than say no to your invitation? You're doing something rhetorically uh, distinct and profound or different. Well, I imagine someone going in a Spanish-speaking neighborhood in California trying to buy a Tex-Mex takeaway while speaking half Spanish. It would probably sound as if they were mocking Spanish speakers there. So, if we wanted to incorporate words from other languages or cultural experiences into our lives, how can we do that respectfully? First of all, making reciprocal accommodations, trying to understand each other's culture, and then allowing for uh, new possibilities, how our cultures will change. Uh, I can give a, a very practical example. For a lot of celebrations in Sri Lanka, we share food with our neighbors. So uh, when we move to this neighborhood, uh, there are a lot of Anglo-American families uh, next to us for uh, important festivals, like even Christmas, New Year, and stuff like that. Uh, we used to send a homemade cake or cookies Initially, they were kind of surprised. They would open the door and my children walk up and give them a platter. They were wondering, like, what's this? And then recently, after about five or six years of doing it, they actually reciprocate. They send cookies to us 
pop cakes to us. Actually, there's one family in front of our house who is uh, who are Chinese. They ch send us um, uh, Chinese cookies, and we enjoy that a lot because they're responding with their own culture. I underestimated the fact that communication is not just about words. After all, if two strangers can experience the overwhelming feeling of mami la pinatapay just by staring at each other, there must be more to communication than meets the eye. If you think about it, it's almost like translingualism is a way of life. So if you apply it, you won't necessarily have so many untranslatable moments, right? We are showing native speakers and people who are not ready for this that they are actually understanding a lot of other people with other languages in, in which languages they don't have competence when they want to, when they need to. So we show them examples where, say, they're traveling in another country and they have to survive. So as a tourist, and they're doing a lot of things to try to buy food, get on the bus, uh, visit a place. And we tell them, look, all these things are perfectly fine. They are not compensatory. They are not deficient. So basically what you're trying to show is when you want to do it, you are able to do it. It's uh, when you uh, forget those instances and you are in a position of power that you're not doing it. You are saying, no, okay, I want to insist on the other person talking like me. A lot of uh, Anglo-American undergraduate students, young kids like um, 16 years old, 18 years old, uh, who come to our classes, initially they say, well, you know, I know only English and I don't know any other languages. We tell them, look, you're listening to this music from the Korean pop group. Is it BTS? I'm at a restaurant in Italy and I don't speak a single word. Salve, cosa posso portarle? Oggi abbiamo pizzoccheri della Valtellina, chat, carpaccio di bresava, tarots, what? e per dolce. What? I want what they're having, I guess. Maybe I should point or something. Oh, quello è il piatto migliore del giorno. I pizzoccheri sono tipici della nostra cucina tradizionale. Si tratta di Obviously this person needs to hone their Italian skills. But long story short, you can simply be understood by pointing at your neighbor's plate and saying grazie with a big smile. I would say pointing gesture is universal, but the way people point are quite actually different. So for example, in some parts of Africa, pointing with the left hand is really impolite. In many parts of the world, people point with their lips as if like an exaggerated kissing, kind of a cross your lips forward and to point. This is Kita Sotaro, professor of psychology of language at the University of Warwick in England. In brief, he's an expert of gestures. So in a last-ditch effort to establish the existence of untranslatability, we asked him, are some gestures, like pointing, universal? 
in some cultures, you know, pointing hand may have a particular meaning. So the classic pointing with your index finger extended, that's used in many, many cultures. But in Japan, for example, open hand pointing indicate that the, um, you show respect to you. So for example, things like that could be different across cultures and you may not pick that up if you don't know the convention, but point at something, extend your body towards something to indicate something I think is universal. Another evidence that the uh, you know, gesture can be really helpful when you have a language barrier is that the um, children start to point before they can speak. Most of the children point at things before they can even say a word and they, they can get their message across uh, in this way. Pointing gestures are precursor to you know, other ways of communicating, including speaking. And the scene we just heard at the Italian restaurant proves it. But the plot thickens. It turns out, to my joy, that untranslatable gestures also exist. Australian Aboriginal culture is also well known for using lots of gestures, big gestures. And um, for them, spatial information is very, very important because many of them traditionally lived in the desert and uh, you know, navigating in the desert was super important for their survival. So spatial information was very, very important. So they indicate uh, directions and uh, locations in gesture in a very clear and uh, um, explicit manner. And um, for them, gesture is so important that the, uh, you, know, you could lie in gesture. So if somebody's gesture is wrong, you can challenge the person saying, you know, you're gesturing to the wrong direction. I don't think in other parts of the world, if your gesture is wrong, nobody's going to challenge you. But if you say the wrong thing in speech, people would challenge you. So in some cultures, gesture is as legitimate and official medium of communication as speech. This sounds very similar to the urban legend that the Inuit have lots of words for snow. Some gestures are deeply rooted in the culture they originate from. Gesture has lots of cultural specificity and um, could lead to misunderstanding sometimes. And, you know, for example, Japanese people are known to nod a lot. Uh, so they bob their head very often. And uh, sometimes this is misunderstood as agreement. But, you know, when Japanese people are nodding, they don't actually are not really agreeing with you. They're basically saying, I'm listening. And uh, we are having conversation. We are connected. But people from other cultures might misinterpret that as, oh, no, he agreed. He said yes. Well, I may not want to incorporate that into my everyday conversations. Imagine nodding your head to whatever people say in a Western country. I'd literally turn into a yes-man. But listen to what Professor Sotaro says about Thai culture. Another thing I noticed was that, the, uh, for example, if you go to Thailand, I think people smile a lot more than we do. Thai people often smile when they apologize. You know, if you're a tourist and go somewhere and, uh, you know, tour guide makes a mistake, and, uh, you know, you have to wait for three hours for a bus. And then Togai might say, I'm sorry. 
as he smiles. And, you know, as,、uh, you know, people from, let's say, Western countries or even Japan, you know, oh, this person is smiling. This is not laughing matter. It's not funny. You know, why is he smiling? But this Thai person is trying to reestablish good relationship with you through a smile. Even though gestures are not universally understood, they add layers of meaning in a uniquely efficient way. When we gesture, we can make the conversation smooth. And luckily, there are gestures that are universal, or at least widely accepted across a lot of cultures. So I think gesture can communicate spatial information and、uh, body action information better than spoken words. So, you can communicate a lot more details because there's exact direction, relative location of two things, shape could come in. You know, if you just say throw, throw a ball, you know, there are so many different ways. It could be like a basketball throwing with two hands, like a baseball throw, you know, it could be like a tennis service kind of ball throw. So, there are so many different ways, and、uh, a gesture can. Efficiently communicate、um, how we use our body. If you're thirsty, if you want to get a drink, you don't know the local language, then you might bring your hand to the mouth, sort of an imaginary cup, you're holding an imaginary cup, and you know,、uh, bringing that to the mouth. That kind of gesture could be understood in many different cultures. So, imitation of your bodily action t e n d to work. And funny enough, both Professor Sotaro and Professor Kanagaraja come to the same conclusion. So, gestures can compensate when you don't have the words. That's one way in which you can you know, look into people's mind. I mean, even when people are speaking very fluently, gesture can reveal additional information that's not revealed in speech. So, whether you want to look into a person's mind or not, whether you want to make that extra effort, That's entirely up to you. I mean, many people talk about problems in communication. It's the attitude, stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's not a linguistic problem. You don't have to go to school to educate anything. You don't have to learn linguistics. Change your attitude and try to collaborate with other people, and everything will unravel itself and you'll be able to understand people. This didn't go as I expected. The romantic idea of untranslatable words. Piqued my interest so much that I wanted it to be true. I wanted my world to be enriched with nuances and feelings I hadn't been able to give a name to. Turns out everything can be communicated, unless you belong to another species, that is. I guess for the moment I'll just stick to paraphrasing and explaining my Zengzucht to others. And if that doesn't suffice, well, as the saying goes, A gesture is worth a thousand words. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. 
Special thanks to our guests Marco Neves, Suresh Kanagaraja, and Kita Sotaro. Production and theme by Studio Ochenta. Sound design by Chiara Santella. Senior producer, Glitzia Sala. Assistant producers, Haley Choi, Leo Ibanez, Leia Zipstein, and Clark Marchese. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ochenta Podcasts. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country, and we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.